0: Good morning. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah this morning. It's chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. And you can find that on page 625 in the Bibles we provide. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word of the Lord. And our New Testament selection is Philippians 2, it's verses 5 through 11, and that's on page 980. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord.
1: And our text this morning for study is from Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 28, but I'm going to begin reading with verse 17 to set the context. If we miss the context, then uh, the whole discussion will not make nearly as much sense. You'll find this on page 825. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before them, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many." The Word of the Lord. The Gospel of Christ. It's even better. We see in this text the raw, unbridled ambition, the lust for power and authority that marked James and John because we know that the sons of Zebedee were James and John. And I'm always amused when I read this passage that they actually got their mother to go with them and to kneel before Jesus and plead on their behalf. Absolutely remarkable because there were no two people closer to Jesus than James and John. They were two of the four first disciples whom Jesus had called. They were brothers, sons of Zebedee who were mending their nets, as were their partners, apparently, two other brothers, Peter Peter and Andrew would become Peter later, Simon and Andrew. And Jesus called these four to leave their nets and followed him. And they had been at the center of Jesus' ministry now for three years. And in fact, whenever Jesus kind of pulled his inner core of disciples away from the larger group of twelve, It was Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these four. And even within the four, sometimes just the three went with Jesus as to the Mount of Transfiguration. I wonder because Andrew, Peter's brother seems to have been the most level-headed of the entire group. And I rather suspect that when Jesus took the three, it's because he wanted Andrew to stay and kind of ride herd over the disciples who'd been left behind. But the point is that if anyone should have known what Jesus' life and ministry was about. It was these two brothers, James and John. And yet they come to him with this incredible request. And it's easy to read the Gospels and look at things like this and wonder, you know, where did Jesus get this collection of jokers, except if we're in tune with our own hearts? And then, if you're at all like me, maybe you're all sanctified all the way to just the the edge of glory. But I must confess that when I look at these guys over and over again, I see my own story. And I see that these guys who, at one level, they'd left everything and followed Jesus. They'd left their nets. They'd left their business. They'd left their families. They followed him for three years now. He turned his face toward Jerusalem, and yet they still had a whole part of them that was in it for themselves. It's remarkable to me that uh, Matthew tells us that uh, when when the rich young ruler, you know, came running and Jesus said, unless you're willing to give away everything you have, give it to the poor because that's your God, (laughs) and come follow me, can't be my disciple, let him leave. Peter turned to him and said, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? They were still wrestling with their own hopes and ambitions and dreams. And like many of us, thought that Jesus was God's Messiah and wanted to be there with him. But they wanted to be there with him when he ruled and reigned in his kingdom. They wanted him to help them fulfill the longings of their hearts without taking the path that he had set to reach the end. And so in looking at this text, I want to ask three closely related questions. The final one, in fact, is just an application. What do we do? Where do we start? But the first two are very closely related and strike, I think, at the heart of why of the four commitments that we always are asked to make at our annual mission conference pray, go, serve, give. It is this third call to serve us that really gets to the heart of the thing. If, if we get this right, then the others follow naturally. If we don't have this right, then the others are just religious exercise, done because we think we should, but not really done as unto the Lord, to his glory and gratitude. So I want us first simply to ask why is self-sacrificial service crucial in the life of a disciple? And I think we see the reason simply by noting those first two verses, verse 20 and 21. And then the next two verses, we ask a second question that digs down deeper in Jesus' response to the question. Why, though, first, is self-sacrificial service crucial in our understanding of discipleship? Again, most of us, I think, were probably raised being taught that being a Christian means you pray to prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, a line, by the way, that you will never find anywhere in Scripture. No one is asked to invite Jesus into their heart. But I'm all for praying that prayer, if you know what it means. You're inviting His Spirit to come fill you, take possession of you. Being a disciple is being one who is following Jesus to learn from him and is trusting him and pursuing him, seeking likeness to him. That doesn't save us, as we'll be reminded in the second question. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. It's that second part. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And so we see these disciples come, ask for the places of honor without a clue what they've just asked for. And at the heart of their request, we'll only understand it if we step back for a moment and remember that in the heart of this particular gospel, Matthew's gospel, beginning with chapter 16, up through this passage, three times Jesus says to his disciples, he draws them aside and says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to my enemies, I'm going to be crucified, but don't be afraid because I'll be raised up. In chapter 16, after Peter has answered the question, who do you say I am, correctly and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus has renamed him from Simon to Peter and said, this is the rock. This confession you've made that I'm Lord is the rock on which I'll build my church. It's the key that will open hearts and lives and families and nations to the kingdom. Now, don't tell anyone why. Because he then says for the first time to them, we're going to Jerusalem now, and I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I'm going to be put to death, but I'll rise up. And Peter comes straight to him and says, it will not be so. No, no cross. We don't have to even talk about that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For now you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And then he says, just as there's a cross for me, there's a cross for you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. Only if you let it go will you find life? Next chapter, chapter 17. Again, Jesus has gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration, taken the three, Peter, James, and John, and then come back down teaching them when he gathers the disciples around himself. He tells them again, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to his enemies, put to death, but on the third day he'll rise. And we read that they were deeply distressed at his words. No one says, unpack this. What do you mean? What's going to happen? We want to understand. Immediately we read they're deeply distressed, and then they get together, and at the beginning of chapter 18, they go to him and say, tell us, who is the greatest in the kingdom? That's again their response. No, no, it doesn't have to be the cross. Hey, you want to talk about the cross? We don't want to talk about that who's the greatest? And now here, the setup for this. The third time, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to crucify me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised up. And the response this time is that Peter is rather that James and John go with their mother and request the places of honor at Jesus' right and left side. Why is this so important to understand? Because this is striking at the very heart of our dislocation from God and from one another. It is right for us to desire glory. It is right for us to want to be there with Jesus by his side even ruling and reigning with him. That's what we were created for, and that's what he redeemed us for. That's why he made us out of all the creation that we know in his image, after his likeness, for intimate friendship with him, and to share at last in his glory. We are destined for glory. And so we long for that. But from the very beginning, the opening story of our first parents in Genesis, is of them looking at this glorious world that had been given and all of life that had been entrusted to them. And the temptation came in the one thing where God said, not that, not that. And the temptation was to say, has God really said that? Would God really, if God wants me to be happy, would he really say that to me? I don't think so. I wouldn't say that to my child if I wanted my child back. I mean, this makes no sense. So it always comes that way. Is this really what God would say? No, I want to be happy. I won't be fulfilled if I stay in this situation, if I stay in this marriage, if I continue to be sick, if I'm thwarted in my hopes and dreams. I can't be happy. I can't be fulfilled. I can't flourish, the the big word now, flourishing. And so to flourish, we take what God has not given. And instead of becoming like God, we become like the beasts that perish. And it's the story not only of our first parents, it's the story of humanity since. And Jesus has said, there is a way to glory, but you must follow me. And every time he says to them, that way is now going to become incredibly painful and difficult, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They want to talk about glory. And so now in his answer, Jesus sharpens the focus. It's not just that self-sacrificial service is absolutely crucial in understanding discipleship. We now see in Jesus' response that self-sacrificial service is inescapable for anyone who would be his disciple. Why do I say that? It's interesting, they come and ask for seats of honor. We want the place of honor. And Jesus says, you don't know what you've asked. They didn't realize that Jesus was about to be lifted up and glorified on the cross. And they were asking essentially to be crucified at his right and left hand. He said, You've no idea what you've asked. And so, to try to begin to get them understanding, he talks about the cup. He says, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say, Yes, we can drink it, whatever it is, you know. Let us be at your right and left hand, and we'll just say, I'll have what he's having. You know? They don't have a clue. And Jesus, ruefully, I think, says, You will drink the cup. But it's not for me, it's to my for my Father to say who's at my right and my left hand. What's he talking about? According to the scripture, every single one of us will drink at last, from one of two cups. We will either drink, at last, the cup of God's wrath against human rebellion and sin, or we will drink the cup of blessing because we are in Christ Jesus, who has already drunk to the dregs the cup of the Father's wrath for those who are his. Where do I get that? Just one classic text from Psalm 75 puts it this way, and the Jewish people were familiar with this language. In the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's why Jesus, the night Of his arrest in the garden of Gethsemane, taking Peter, James, and John again with him deeper into the garden and asking them, please, to watch and pray just one hour with him. Goes further on and wrestles with his father and what's his word? What's his prayer? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now crucifixion itself was uniquely designed to slowly torment a person to death through excruciating physical agony. It was the Romans' means through state-sponsored terrorism of making people keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, pay their taxes, go up once a year to a temple, put a pinch of incense on and say, Caesar is Lord. In other words, it was their way to terrify people into worshiping the Roman state and obeying it implicitly. And Jesus was going to face that the next day, but that was not what he was asking to avoid. People who go into great lengths describing the agony of crucifixion and say that's what had him in the garden, that's not what he referred to. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup was that? It was the cup of the Father's wrath. It was as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so he cried out from the cross the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a rending beyond our ability to begin to understand in the very heart and life of God himself. In order to redeem us, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's why a few hours earlier in the upper room at the Passover, he'd taken the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. This bread is my body for the life of the world. When you and I eat this meal, we look back and in some way beyond our comprehension, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we even participate again in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf where when he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, when the chastisement that we deserve was put on him and with his wounds, we are healed. We participate again in that and we look ahead to that beautiful scene in in Revelation where the redeemed gather for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why can we be there? Because Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Self-sacrificial service is tied to his obedience. And so as they came to arrest him and Peter drew his sword, John tells us in John 18, Jesus said, put away your sword. The cup that the Father gives me to drink, shall I not drink it? He prayed his way through into the garden to that place of being willing to become that which he was not, to become sin for us. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. Are you able to drink this cup? Those who are not in Christ one day will have to drink it, and it will be to their eternal destruction. John tells us in the Revelation that the the day comes when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth and the wicked must drink it to the dregs. You and I who sit here in safety in Knoxville, Tennessee, will one day either have drunk of the cup of blessing or we will drink the cup of God's wrath against rebellion and sin. And Jesus rescued us through his self-sacrificial service. And so if we say, where do we begin to learn this life that he has given us? We're saved not through our service, but through his. Why did he say, there's a cross for me and there's a cross for you? Because our cross His cross reconciles us to the Father. Nothing can be added to it. But our cross reconciles him to the world. We take the message to a lost world in self-sacrificial service. So where do we begin? Final question. Jesus answers in verses 24 through 28. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over those under their authority. They are in charge. They tell this one to go and this one to come. They rule and reign. He says, it shall not be so for those who are mine. That's not how the kingdom of God is carried out. But anyone who would be great must be least, must be a servant, must be doulos, a bond slave. That's what you have to become. What does that mean? It means, as I've said so often to you, and I say to myself daily, on unawaking, we awaken first with this. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Not that old fool, that old self-created John Wood. That's past, that's dead. But Christ, who lives it. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Our service starts there, and it should end at the end of each day with that reminder as I go to sleep, let my dreams honor you. Let me awake and refresh to serve you and serve you well. Let me never forget that I have been bought with a price and called to glorify you, beginning with my body. Here I am. I'm yours. I'm not my own. I'm your servant. For the Son of Man came, Jesus said, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that beautiful Philippians 2 text that Gretchen read to us. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God, something to cling to, but emptied himself, became one of us, took human form, took the form of a slave humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, there is no way to glory except through the cross. His cross received through faith. Our cross received in the strength of his spirit. Apart from that, it's absurd to speak of union with Christ. It's absurd to speak of being part of his body. How can I be part of his body and his spirit in me if he's going that way and I'm always going this way and trying in my prayers to convince him to get over here and bless whatever I've decided I'm about? To be a disciple of Jesus, which is what it means to be a Christian, means that we've accepted, that we live under the shadow of the cross and embrace the cross because we are joined through salvation with the King of Life who, as the author of Hebrews said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of glory. This is our calling and it's crucial to all the rest because this is what it means to be in union with Christ Jesus. It means that I am His, and He is mine, and I'm going with Him, though it be a cross. Yes, James and John got to drink the cup of blessing, but it led, in James' case, very quickly to a place of real pain. He didn't get to reign long here, because we read in Acts that just after Stephen was killed, King Herod put James, the brother of John, to the sword, killed him. The James we read of later in Acts is not that James, the one who requested a place of honor. Rather, it's Jesus' brother who left us the letter of James. But James, John's brother, was one of the first to die for the faith after Pentecost. And then John, who was the only one of the disciples who apparently didn't run away, or if he did, he came back because he was there, at the cross with Jesus' mother. So that Jesus could look down and say, woman, behold your son, man, behold your mother. Entrusting the care of his mother to John. And so he just couldn't die. He lived on and on and on. We have letters from his students to one another. Those who sat at his feet in Ephesus and knew him and knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. And finally, he was banished to Patmos where he would receive the revelation that is the final book in the Bible. Those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand, God will lift up. Those who exalt themselves, God has promised that he will humble. The one whom we serve is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And all the books on leadership to the contrary, Whatever the theory, it seems that once we begin to dig into most businesses, most schools, and tragically most churches, there's an unbiblical model of power and rule going on. Nearly every church split is not actually over theology, but over power struggle. And Jesus said, it can't be so, not if you're mine, because I came among you as a servant. And if you would be great, you want to talk about greatness? The way up is the way down. The way to glory can't go around the cross. It has to go through it. Are you ready when you wake up, if you live with a family, to say, my husband or my wife, my children, my parents, my siblings, are not given to me to fulfill and satisfy my sense of what I need. If I am in Christ, I have now been given to them in order to serve. The people I work with, the people I go to school with, the people that are my friends do not exist in order to make me feel better about myself or to satisfy what I consider my needs. Instead, the one whom I call Lord, the one who is now enthroned in glory, humbled himself, came and served, gave up his life, and then looked across the millennia in my eyes. You believe it, Christian? What do you believe? I believe in God the Father. I believe Jesus Christ is only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, was buried, he descended into. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended. From there he came to church. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated.